Welcome to the Institute's Leading Edge, a show dedicated to giving automotive professionals the tools and education needed to succeed. The topics we cover are all geared towards running a better business, leading a better life, and ultimately changing the industry for, well, the better. Here's what's coming up. To me, there's a ton of opportunity in everything. The last two acquisitions that we got, one was a store that was very profitable and the owner wanted to sell it for top dollar. We got it up to 180 within the second month we had it. The last three months, it's done over 200,000. Even though it's successful and he wanted top dollar, what's the capacity and, and what's the potential of that store? And so I think that's really critical when you're looking at that. For each person, it's a little bit different and that's the beauty of owning your own shop is you get to decide what's right for you. We need your help. By submitting questions or topics to info at wearetheinstitute.com, we can continue to provide relevant content to you, the listener. But for now, what are we waiting for? Let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Institute's Leading Edge. Today, we're on episode number 83, and we're going to be talking about multiple shop operations or opportunities. We've got an MSO team here. These guys have been running uh, multiple shops for a while. And we're very excited to talk to them about their experience in developing, how they got to that point, uh, what they do to make it happen. And uh, it's going to be a great podcast. A reminder here, if you guys enjoy this content, you learn something, please like and give us a share so that we can get this out to more people. Um, today on our panel, we've got Tom Lambert from Shadetree and A.B. Hadley. We have Seth Thorson from Eurotech and Brian Bates from Eagle Automotive Service. Um, if you guys have any comments or questions, we'd love to take those. So make sure to hit them in the comment section down below. We're going to be watching this live so we can answer you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll get started. So first, let's kind of take a look at where each of you are at. And uh, let's have you share how many locations you currently own and how long you've been running those multiple shops. So let's go with, uh, let's start with Brian. Okay. Yeah, we uh, we just uh, closed on our sixth, our sixth shop on Thursday last week. So we're up to six. Um, we went from single shop owner to multiple shop owner in 2011. And uh, 2014 got our um, third shop. And in 2021, so April, May this year, we added two more stores and then added our sixth store this uh, this last Thursday. So that's, that's where we're at. Uh, Seth, Give us a quick rundown. Yeah, so I have uh, European stores. We do Euro only. Um, so we have currently three stores. We're closing on a fourth, um, but the building needs major, major renovations. So we won't be open with that location till next year. We started uh, multi-shop. I started back in 2014. I sold the original second location and decided I wanted to focus on Euro only. And we opened our second Euro store in about 2019, which has been open a few years. And now we opened our third store about three months ago after building it from scratch. So ground up build. Literally from scratch. And it's a beautiful shop, man. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and then we have Tom Lambert. It even impressed your dad. That's hard to do. <laughs> Tom, give us, a, give us a rundown here. Uh, I'm just currently operating two shops. Uh, I felt like 2020 wasn't going to be stressful enough, so I bought my second location in February of 2020, and uh, all is good as of now. Well, one of the reasons why we got all of you in here is because you're all at different points, I would say, and we wanted to kind of talk about the transition, the growth, the the journey that you've taken, and we know that you guys are running really good shops as well, so it's not just that you've got multiple shops, but they are 
uh, high performing shops. Dad, did you want to weigh in on this? I I'm good. I I had three shops in the late nineties or uh, late eighties, early nineties, which I sold. And so I also have had multiple shops and a little bit of experience. And then I coach with most of these guys and, and, uh, help them do well. So one question that a lot of shop owners have that are trying to get into MSO is how did you guys know that your business was ready for another location? Tom, how did you know? Cause you, this was more recent for you. How did you know you were ready? Uh, I knew I was ready for the last couple of years, just cause the, you know, my shade tree location here, I've had the right team in place and they were hitting goals without, uh, really any interaction from me. The shop only needs me for about eight hours a month. So, um, that's, that's the main reason I'm just, I wasn't needed for a long time on the day-to-day interactions. And then everybody was buying in super easy and it just wasn't utilizing my time to hit the goals that we're hitting at the shop. So I needed something to do with my time. To be honest. Was there, was there a specific, like a particular moment you can remember when you were like, Hey, I think, I think I'm going to buy another shop. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a couple of years ago. I was actually kind of shopping around going to buy another uh, shop in the Salt Lake area that just couldn't come to terms. They just, uh, thought they were worth a little bit more than what I thought. And then it just so happened that the shop I ended up buying just uh, kind of landed in my radar. And then within a week or so, uh, we were in there buying them because they were in pretty desperate need of, of, uh, of, of cash. So, so just because I want to, I want to interject this question just while we're on the topic, how did you know, how are you going and evaluating the value of those businesses? So as, as somebody who wants to buy another business, how are you going and evaluating potential purchases there? Yeah, well, uh, honestly, I, I use Cecil quite a bit for that uh, as far as advice. But for me, I was looking at the the, the shop that I ended up not buying. Um, I looked at their last three years of profit and loss statements, uh, factored what their, you know, their average yearly net was. Um, and then I kind of uh, factored in how much owner's operations there was, you know, how much of the owner's time was involved. And then for me, honestly, uh, multiple locations to me is more of a real estate move. Uh, it's kind of a retirement move for me. So I'm more worried about the real estate than I am the actual operations of the shop. The shop just happens to be what I'm going to use to pay the mortgage payment over the next 10 years until I go on the property. So those are the main three things I was looking at. And then obviously staffing and stuff like that, because that's you know my top concern of how I'm going to make money is how am I going to get the right people in the seat, right? Well, thank you. Uh, Brian, when, you know, what, when did you realize you wanted to get into multiple shops? You know, I always had that, uh, that, that desire to do that. Even when we first bought our um, shop in 2004. Um, And I I think it was probably real similar to Tom is, is just, you get this feeling that, Hey, these guys are doing it on their own and gals. um, And, and so, if uh, if if they can manage the uh, the store while I'm gone, then why not scale and duplicate what we did here somewhere else? Um, you know, it, it always felt to me as I was buying stores and continue to buy stores that 
it's not perfect, but it's it's at a point where we can we can do it, and we're going to stretch ourselves. I think if you wait till it's perfect, then uh, th- then it becomes um, much different. Uh, I mean, it, you just get this point where you're just, oh, gosh, you know, there's this problem, this problem, this problem, and I don't think you'll ever jump. And, and same thing with buying, you know, your first store is is this a perfect opportunity? Are there no other problems? And just a slam dunk, no no worries at all. There's always, you know tons of stuff to worry about, but you do have to have a little bit of a blind faith. Now, I, I would say when it's not a good idea is when, you know, we call it entrepreneurial seizures when uh, you just, you know, you, you think you're struggling with stuff and um, and, and you see an opportunity come around and, and uh, you, you start thinking, well, I can do this and it's not perfect, but, um, you know, it's a great opportunity, that sort of thing. And, and some of the basics are not running well. You don't have a good manager. Um, you don't have a good team in place, all that sort of stuff. And that ends up being a bad situation or a bad scenario from what I've seen. So, so I think the team and the autonomy of the team is probably really key in making sure that you have somebody you trust and that, that they're working there without, you know, needing a lot of input from you is, is really probably the basics. So, so just to clarify, you're saying that sometimes what, what would be a bad situation is that instead of dealing with the actual, you know, critical issues in your business, you're getting distracted with, oh, here's a new shiny thing I can do instead. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and really the key is, and I don't think that it's, that, that it's an anomaly in just the auto repair industry, but I think in business in general, it's all about the people that you have inside your team. And if you, if you're not comfortable with those people and walking away and trusting that they're going to do what you need them to do when you're not there, then, like don't walk away. But if you do feel like you have that, even if they're not perfect or not fully developed, it's not maximized. I think it's a great opportunity to just start putting feelers out there and looking and saying, hey, look, if a good opportunity came around, then I would take it. I also think that the opportunity plays into it as well. If it's something where you look at it and you, and you say, man, there is a lot of stuff going on at this store. It's an ongoing concern, but there's a lot of dysfunction and I'm going to have to spend a lot of my time there then the more you really look at your operation and say, hey, if I were to only spend eight hours a week there versus the 30 hours a week that I'm spending right now, would I have two problems on my hand instead of just one? So a lot of that is just the, the phase that you're in and where you are mentally and, and with your team. And, and it's probably going to be different for everybody, you know, based on their individual situation. Yeah. Seth, was there was there a key moment when you realized that you wanted to take Eurotech from a single single operation to a multi multi shop operation. Yeah, we were. I mean, we were getting kind of capped out at our current location um, for for volume of what we could do. Um, and I also had a pretty good bench, and I had some people that wanted more. And you know, a big driver was the glass ceiling that exists in our industry with a single model store. Is you're gonna have some you're gonna have some really good techs. You're gonna have some really good managers. You're gonna have people that feel they hit that glass ceiling and there's nothing more they can do in this. They go leave to do something else. So, you know, a lot of it also is retaining your best people and giving them opportunities. So you were just, you were just more in line with like, well, we've kind of hit where we can, what we can do here and we need to grow in order to keep these top performers in the realm of Eurotech. Yeah, that was a big driver for us because again, we have, you know, um, Cecil met Daniel, who's a real go-getter. And, and I got some really good people on my team that that they wanted more. And 
as you know, when you run the numbers in a business, you can only pay people, you can only elevate people so far. There's there's a cap without being able to create more revenue and overall income to be able to pay people more, to be able to promote more people. I had a really good technician that really wanted to be a foreman. Well, my foreman is 30 years old. So, I mean, his opportunity to be that foreman wasn't going to happen. Um, but growing another shop allows me to take another really good ATEC and plant him in a shop and, and be the foreman and make the income and the leadership that he wants. So one, one question I have is what, what are some of the weird, I guess, what are some of the things that ended up coming out that you hadn't thought of before you, you got into buying another shop? I mean, you do deplete your bench, right? Um, you know, our, our second shop was a, was a little bit of a struggle and the third to some degree too, because it's, you're, you're trying to find people and train them in onboarding. Our second shop was a much bigger challenge than our third, because by the time we realized we were going to three shops, four shops, five shops, which is the ultimate plan, we developed a really solid onboarding system as well as our own LMS to train people and onboard people. Now, is that perfect? No, but we get people onboarded and trained probably faster than most people in the industry. So training was a key key part of getting that second shop up to speed. Or well, that the third second one we did, speed. the second one we did, and, and we built a parachute as we were jumping out the plane. Um, the third one we <laughs> the third one we planned a little bit better, hired a little bit better, and and trained a little bit better. And, and the second shot gave us a good realization that we really need to build onboard people because we're going to lose a key employee. We're going to have a key employee, even as well as you treat them, we're going to have a key employee exit. And we needed the ability to retrain people quickly and efficiently. What if we told you that you could get quality training and education conveniently and without emptying your pockets? Our gear platform presents great education and resources for automotive shops, courses led by experts inside and outside our industry, a community of like-minded people to engage with, and a resource library at your fingertips. With a monthly membership, you can gain access to every course we have in the library, as well as the multiple courses we add each and every month. With the ability to watch wherever and whenever you'd like, the right training is more easily accessed than ever before. For help with improving your business, Go to weartheinstitute.com and take your first course today. Dad, were there things that come out that that came out that you hadn't realized when you grew those locations? I think I think the the thing for me is no matter how well you plan, uh, and let's say you have a shop that's running exceptionally well, and you can walk away from there, uh, and you've planned for this and you're ready for it, and you go in, and all of a sudden things aren't what you were told or what you thought. And even if you if they are what you were told and what you were thought, they they they're very fluid on the ground. You never know uh, what's going to happen when you take the company over. You know our our recent acquisition, a lot of surprises in that, and 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 a couple of surprises that made it like maybe we shouldn't have done this thing. <laughs> um, that 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 are are scary, but I think you have to have flexibility. I there. There's like a quality, I think, in in these guys that want multiple stores. One is enough's not enough. Uh, I want to keep winning. And to me, keep winning. The score is I have another shop that's successful. I have another shop that's successful. Um, and I think they have to have some kind of resilience that says when the, you know, when the the mirror hits the fan, you know, uh, 
I know what to do. It's hit, it's hit the fan before. It's not the end of the world. Uh, we'll get this thing figured out. So for me, it was, it's more about, I mean, I lo- don't get me wrong. I think the systems and processes are really important uh, because they make the shop run consistently, get consistent results. But when you're taking on a second shop with that has virtually none of that, the flexibility that you have uh, is the thing that makes it much more likely to be successful. Brian, Brian, do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Or yeah, I, I agree that you have to have a certain amount of of systems and processes, but I think that when you have those the, the right people there, then you rely on the systems and processes less. If uh, and there's a, an old saying in in government, right, is that you can't legislate morality. You can't you can't system and process people into being. Um, good, good people, right? Good decision makers, that sort of thing. And so having those people on board to me is much more important than the systems. And those systems should serve the people that you have that are operating your stores. You shouldn't hire people to serve the systems that you have in place in the store. So I love that. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I steal that? I'm going to use it. I stole it from someone else. So (laughs) yeah. Say if you use it three times, it's yours. Um, but yeah, the, the systems, uh, and, and I think that's sometimes that, that balance that people go one way or the other too much on, right. Is I, I don't have good systems, so I need to hire those rock stars and they can't find the rock stars cause they're not out there. And, and at a certain point, the rock star you need, he owns a business because he's that good. Right. And then, then there's the other side of, you know, Hey, look, I need to get my systems together because, people in the store are not doing what, or they're making mistakes or they're making bad decisions or, you know, maybe, maybe even you got bad players in there that are like, Hey, look, I'm going to put these systems in place. So nobody can steal out of the cash drawer. So we're not going to take cash anymore. That sort of thing to me goes too far. Um, and because now, now you're, you're stifling your business because you're not, you're not investing in the right kind of people. So one thing, one thing that I've, I've, been curious about is how did you guys change the way you handled your HR as you went from one store to two stores or, you know, uh, two shops to three shops? Tom, have you, have you made any significant changes in your HR? No, that's, that's still me. I am HR. Uh, Obviously I have fine tuned my marketing for new people, my interview process and my training process. And, uh, Thankfully, because honestly, that's that's always been uh, that's probably my least favorite thing to do in the business is uh, look through resumes, interview, hire, train, fire, start over, right? But uh, not necessarily any changes to HR at this point because it's just still mostly me and whoever I've got in place as my manager at each store. Okay, Brian, was there anything that changed for you? Um. You know, for me, the HR is like one of the funnest parts, right? And it's <laughs> it's it's not benefits and payroll and all that. It's the the human resources in the true sense of we're in this business. It's the people business and developing human development inside of the company is is super exciting. And the the more I you know we we progress as a company then the more time I get to spend on really developing people. And, and to me, that's where all the action is. That's where the significance is in this industry. As, as, as you progress and you mature as, um, as a shop owner or as a, a store manager or any, any professional in this industry, it's 
developing and interacting and having impacts on people's lives. And, and something that you, you know, my goal is to always look back five years from now and say, man, what we did last five years is pretty cool. And, and, you know, next in the next five years, we're going to do this, or, or these are the goals. And, and you look at, this is where we're at and this is where we want to be. And in your mind, it's like that straight shot. And to Cecil's point, in all actuality, it kind of goes like this. And, and you know, there's moats and alligators and, you know, bombs that you're, you know, landmines you're trying to avoid, all that sort of stuff. But at the beginning, you're going, okay, we got to get from there to there. And then the excitement, the challenge, the 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 fear, um, the, uh, the, 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 you know, just the the surprises, all that sort of stuff, just go in on it with, or go in the uh, in the system, and, and it's part of the process. And people, you know, Cecil said that that there's certain people that are geared towards multiple shop ownership. And for me, it's it's not only just you know growing and growing and growing, and it's a bit of a drug to some extent. But you want to see, hey, how how far can I progress um, myself? But then the more people that you get on board, you look back at them and you say, man, in order for me to progress, I've really got to get those people to move forward. So how far can I move these people and finding the right people that are driven, that want to excel and making sure that you're not the lid that they're hitting as a leader. And so you have to stay ahead of that and you have to keep expanding yourself so that you grow and it gives them potential to grow along with it. So for me, the, the human resources turned into let's get people that are really good and love the, the the numbers and organizing things and all the details, because I don't like that and get those people to do that. So it frees me up to do the thing that really excites me. It's well put. Seth, was there, what, what did it take to get the second or third location up to speed? I mean, it's, just, it's, it's like Brian said, it's training your people. Um, I probably rely a little bit heavier on systems because we're, we're built on, we want a consistent product across all the stores and we have a very discerning customer with the European market that they are highly demanding. So I do probably have a little bit more systems. Maybe I, I don't know, but our stuff has in, in our view and our organization, our stuff has to be pretty exacting because our customers demand demand it from what we do with the cars we service. Um, but as far as onboarding the stores, it's, you know, we try to do the transplant model, right? So I don't open a new store generally, unless I have somebody on my bench that's trained, that's cultured in our company that knows what we do so that I don't, you know, even though I have the systems and processes, like Brian said, you have to have good people. I want to take somebody that's really good. And at least one person has to be transplanted into my new store. So I won't open a store with a whole new staff. Now there's other people that I'll tell you that you should never break your golden goose. I'm the maybe the exception that says I'll break my golden goose and I'm going to take one person and transplant them to a store because that ensures that I have somebody I can trust, that I can rely on, that if something is going on in that store that shouldn't be, that I have a trusted person in that store that's going to go to me or Daniel, my COO, and say, Daniel, like, this is not the Eurotech way. This is, you know, people can fudge systems and processes. You still, at the end of the day, have to have people you can trust and rely on. And putting somebody in a store allows that person to have feedback and say, they're not doing it the way we should. And so we can go in there and get it corrected. I think, I think one of the keys, <clears throat> excuse me, I think one of the keys is not necessarily 
you raided the, the other store and you killed the golden goose because you, you didn't do that, but you have built and are constantly building teams and you know how to give authority away to the right people, you know, in the right way at the right time and hold them accountable. So there is a, a leadership management uh, piece of this that I think if it's missing that, that you go, you buy a store and, and you're, then you're the guy that says, oh my God, I've got two stores and I don't know what to do with, man, I got to get rid of one because it's driving me nuts. Instead of, you know, you have, uh, uh, Seth has Daniel and Daniel frankly does an awful lot of the work, but that's the way it's designed and it's his job to do it. And Seth makes sure that that happens that way. Uh, um, you know, Tom just, has, I mean, me, me and Daniel just wrapped up a hour long meeting before this because we meet every Wednesday because he carries out most of what I do. But I walked into one of my stores two days ago and we had a guy that had been there for three weeks. because I hadn't been to that store for three weeks. And all of a sudden it's like, who are you? <laughs> but that's OK, because he was vetted by the right people in the right way. So in you go. Uh, Tom, you've got um, your gal, the just literally unbelievable manager for your store that does unbelievable numbers and and gives you the freedom and the ability to go do the other thing, whatever that is. And I'm yeah. I'm I'm really sure that Brian has people in play. I've seen them. I've shaked their hands. That he can give away authority and say, "Here, you take care of this," and then that then that gets taken care of. Without that, I think you can't. You can't go to number two or number three, or if you do, by the time you get to number three, you're pretty much broke. You're, all your hair's falling out, and you're about to have a stroke. Um, yeah, and I think to Seth's point, right? I mean, it's that that level of the systems and processes, um, and, and there is the balance. And to, to, I, I love football analogies, and and uh, I love uh, Lou Holtz, and he said, um, frankly, when I have better players, I'm a better coach. Uh, but that that didn't mean that Lou just said, "Hey, you know, you know, he coached guys like Rocket Ishmael." And just say, "Hey, look, just go run a route, and we'll throw you the ball and get out of the way." There were very specific game plans and, and plays, and there was that training and that practicing that went together. And, and the better player you have, and the better those systems serve those players, then uh, the better results you're going to have. Because you can't just say, "Hey, here's a shop. You're a great person." And let's uh, and we'll get out of your way and you do your thing. And then it's a mess and expect to, to retain high quality people and produce great results. And, and the, the exact opposite is true. You can't put um, people that are not competent and, and professionals in this industry, give them a great game plan and then expect them to execute it. So it's balance and and um, for each person, it's a little bit different. And that's the beauty of owning your own shop is you get to decide what's right for you. So what I've what I've heard just a quick recap is a good solid uh, structure of systems and processes, and a very good team building system where we're developing the right people to run those systems. So people and process. Is right. there is is there anything else that has gone into this um, that would add to this equation for anybody who's thinking of getting into MSO? Um. I mean, my, my, my thing I've seen a lot of with friend shops and stuff is what I call, you know, you have to be able to let go and trust people to do things. I see too much what I call pigeon shit management where they fly over like a bird and poop on everybody. <laughs> and because they got too much to do, then they fly out again. 
And I see that happen a lot. And if you're going to go MSO, you have to be ready to delegate things out and, and let them, frankly, let them fail and then help pick up the pieces and build them back up and figure out what went wrong. But you have to let them make some mistakes. You can't, if you're going to go MSO and want to be a control freak, you're in for a, you're in for a hurting. So, so Tom, you just, you just went through this over the past year. What did it take to get your second shop up to speed? Uh, getting the right people on the team was number one. You know, I took over the shop with the old owner's son in the office, which is the nicest guy, most honest guy, probably one of my favorite guys, but, uh, not, uh, not the kind of personality that should uh, be a service advisor, let alone run a shop. And then there was only one tech in the, in the shop that was a good tech, but frankly, he was, his attitude was horrible and he had five years of terrible habits of working in a failing shop. So uh, the the biggest hurdle for me was, you know, I had to get, I had to fill up a whole team. So I had to flush out. I, I didn't have really any good positions filled. So I needed to get a manager. I needed to get an advisor. I needed to get techs. And then from there was just teaching all, once I had all the right people, just getting, getting them used to my processes and uh, explaining why we do the processes and then slowly but surely, they buy in a little bit more and more. It just gets easier and easier. Were, were there were there any pitfalls that you didn't expect? Um, not really. I mean, I kind of expected to have pitfalls, so I don't. Uh, there wasn't anything major. It's actually we're about a year ahead of schedule as far as where I wanted to be by this point. So there was definitely some struggles. There was definitely some days that weren't as fun as others. But uh, you know, I didn't plan for the 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 virus and stuff freaking everybody out. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter. There's always going to be something, right? Yeah. So let's get into, let's get into some pros and cons before we have a break. Uh, Dad, what are some of the biggest pros and cons from running multiple shops? Cons. um, He starts with the cons. He's like, this is... (laughs) We're in a we're in an interesting time in the automotive industry. There are not a lot of great people out there to be had. If staffing truly is your most important thing, then how do we get the good staff, uh, the people that will uh, move ahead, the people that have good attitudes, the people that will fit within our culture? Uh, I think the stronger your culture is, the more likely that's going to happen. Uh, I think the better the leadership is, the more likely that's going to happen. But that's definitely a con. Um, right now, the automotive industry has some really serious uh, things going on. We have, um, uh, it's hard to say which is one and which is two, but uh, I'll say number one, uh, the most long-term problem is lack of qualified people to hire uh, and lack of qualified people coming in our industry. The second thing is uh, we have a um, supply chain issue right now, which may or may not be temporary. I don't think it's going to be temporary. Uh, uh, I don't know how many thousands of ships are sitting outside and around the United States uh, waiting to drop off parts and things like that that may not ever drop off parts in the next year and a half um, because there's no truckers to take them anywhere. There's nobody to unload the, the ships. Uh, strange to me that that happened um, all at once in the way that it supposedly happened, but it doesn't matter. Uh, th- that um, 
for the right shops may be beneficial. Uh, we have a chip shortage. Uh, there are companies, uh, you know, working hard to create chips, but General Motors two weeks ago stopped building cars in North America completely. Uh, they shut down every one of their plants because they can't finish the cars and there's no sense making them and letting them sit and rot. Uh, so there are no new cars sitting on the, the lot. Used cars have gone up by over 40%, at least that's what the statistical data says. Uh, so we are really in an unbelievably great time, uh, in the automotive industry. And there's another thing on top of that is there's a bunch of guys that are hitting 60, 65, 70 who own shops and who went through the seventies and the eighties, and they're just tired now. And, uh, frankly, they don't know how to run their shop in the modern day and make that shop successful. Uh, you know, I think Tom's shop that he picked up was a was a, uh, a real example of that, a, a low average repair order, great customers in a, in a perfect part of town. The shop was a disaster. I don't, I don't know how many 30 yard dumpsters. He's you not going to sugarcoat it, day, Tom. But, but <laughs> you know, it's beautiful now, but, but, but there are these, there's these diamonds in the rough out there to be picked up. Um, and then there, one more thing for multiple shops, the, a typical automotive shop, if it's if if everything's going right and the owner's not in the middle of it and they got a good lease or they can buy the property and the business has been, you know, three years of growth and yada yada yada, uh, they can get maybe a four x on one year's worth of um, income. So I did two hundred thousand in income. Uh, I get four x. I got eight hundred thousand. Woo! I'm going to retire on that. But when you start kicking it up to multiple shops, you know, over five million in revenue. Um, I can go to a 10, 10 X, even all the way to a 14 X, you know, the bigger, the, the bigger it gets, the bigger the X. So now I might, I might have a million dollars in revenue, but get a 14 X on it because I've got three shops. And, and if I want to retire, you know, 1 million first or 800,000 versus 14 million, uh, that's a little bit of a difference. So, you know, uh, it, it really is an interesting time for multiple shops. And I think uh, guys like Seth and Brian and and even Tom, if he wants to, hasn't decided yet, but uh, uh, they could have six, eight, 10, 20 shops. So I think we're going to see more and more of that as time goes by, as these older guys kind of phase out. I see Brian, he's like trying to, he's breathing. He's thinking he wants to say something. So Brian, what do you think about that? Could you hear me breathing? Yeah, I was. Um, I saw you. No, I, you know, I, I think that this is a, uh, and, and since I've been in the automotive industry, it's just opportunity after opportunity. And yeah, there's a lot of pitfalls and there's some, uh, there's some guys that, that are running with you in the pack and they, uh, you know, you, they, they, they trip and fall on their face and you just keep, keep moving along with the herd. Right. But, um, there, there's a huge opportunity in, in people, in human development. And, and I think that um, Cecil is absolutely right and, and spot on in the fact that the biggest threat we have right now are the fact that or is the fact that people are exiting our industry faster than they're, they're entering the industry. So what I, I, I think, you know, at least what I look at is every great opportunity in the history of business has always been coupled with a huge challenge, right? So the bigger the challenge, the bigger opportunity is to overcome that challenge. And so the better we do as an industry, um, as people that are staying in the industry, um, to keep 
keep developing people and, and training people. And, and I know Seth, I, I, the last I talked to you, Seth, you were, you were going around the country teaching technical training. Um, and so those are the sorts of things that I'm sure has made Seth very successful along with his business, uh, you know, his business ability. And there, there really is no limit to the opportunity once you have people in, in or when you're developing people. And when it comes to the business side of things, you're you, again, Cecil, you're spot on is that I think Greenbrier just sold the majority of their shares. And, uh, and I've heard multiple, somewhere around 20 multiples. Now they they had a big machine. They had a big buyer. They kind of you know sold to the people that um, we you know people like us sell a green buyer. They sell to people like they sold to. But it really, in my mind, really really plays well for the smaller shop owners because that does drive up the the price of smaller shops as as they're selling to these intermediaries that sell to the big guys, knowing that hey look there's a huge market out there. So there is going to be a hunger for that. Now on the MSO side, um, the opportunity with the people is is that the more shops you have, the more opportunity you have in your company. And, and people work for, they, they want to be paid fair, right? But people work for opportunity. And when you talk about opportunity to somebody, it opens their mind and they buy into that. If you're just talking paychecks and you're talking, how much is somebody else offering you? I'll offer you a dollar more an hour. That's the wrong game to be in. The game to be in is where do you want to go with your career? Do you align with where we want to go as a company? And if you do, let's be successful together and look at the opportunity that's here in front of you that you may not have with a guy that's willing to pay you 10 more dollars an hour because maybe that's an ending offer, not a beginning offer. So to me, that that whole um, part of being an MSO makes it a lot easier, honestly, to attract people. When we're looking at hiring people, when they see the organization that we have and that we're a professional organization that we're growing and the more we grow, the more excitement there is around that. Every time we open a store, acquire another store, we kind of get a wave of, of applicants because people get excited and they want to be a part of that. So for me, there couldn't be a more exciting place. And one last thing about the, the parts um, supply chain problem is that it is very critical to align yourself with people that are getting parts. And those are the, the 800 pound gorillas on the block. The, the guys like, you know, Napa, O'Reilly, Worldpack, those bigger companies, because those are the guys that their suppliers, their manufacturers are going to be feeding them because, you know, they, they, they've been the bread and butter there. And then if there's any leftover, then they go to the smaller guys. So making sure that you have those firm relationships and being a multiple shop owner, you have a stronger pull with those suppliers than you would if you only had you know one store. So to me, there's a ton of advantages and, and there's some scary, scary things in there too, but you know, it's scary for me to, to be a single shop owner. You know, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of potential um, threats that if you just stay single shop owner can't be in business without having some sort of uh, you know, a, a risk involved. That's, that's, uh, that's, I would say, one of the pros of having multiple shops is that, you know, you have a more diverse income stream. So if one of the shops in, encounters some big issue, you still have these other two that can help support uh, your income uh, and your team yeah. as well. When it's too good, it's really good. <laughs> when it's bad, it's really bad. <laughs> but- the most crucial interaction our customer has with us is with our service advisors. So why not have it be with someone who's confident and capable? 
We train hundreds of top-performing advisors, utilizing the latest technology, tactics, resources, and training methods. Placing them in a group of their peers, our training keeps them accountable, engaged, and dynamic at the counter. We believe in developing career-oriented advisors so that they have a place they can call home and you don't have to stress anymore about turnover. If you're looking for the next sales training opportunity to provide your advisor with the best possible outcome, experience what it's like to have an institute-trained advisor. Book a discovery call today at weartheinstitute.com. There's a lot of sales training programs out there, so why not choose the right one? But what you want to plan for is, is like each shop being successful, not, not, oh, I'll use the income from these two shops to pay for the unsuccessful shop. Because if you keep doing that, you 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 will drive yourself out of business. You you know you have to you have to make each location a profitable location. I agree. Um, and and you got to be careful. I I've seen so many guys they're on their second or third shop and they're like, well that that shop's not making money, but that's okay because we're making money over here. And three years later, they're both in trouble now because they didn't fix the problem. They used. Um, I watch Shark Tank and and occasionally someone comes on and they're like, uh, oh, so, uh, you know, you did this yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, we don't think you need an investment because the pain of this is going to help you be a much more successful business owner, you know, and sometimes that's really the truth. The truth is I've got to look at that shop that's not working, understand and figure out why it's not working, whether I'm an individual shop owner or multi-shop owner. And, and go in and get that thing fixed because it's just as much a part of my livelihood. And now I have much more at risk. You know, if when I've got six shops, I have six shops at risk. There's, there's a, I'm a little further in debt. I've got a little more, uh, you know, income going out, et cetera, et cetera. I, I got to make it work. So this is a, this is a great spot to take a break. I want to get back to the pros and cons of uh, having an MSO. Um, but before that, I just want to talk about the fact that we have courses online. Um, we have our entire 2022 schedule up for all of the trainings that we, the Institute, are doing. There's a lot of trainings we're doing with uh, the NAPA BDG. Those are on there on our website at weartheinstitute.com. If you click events, you can see those. We've also been doing some training uh, for the World Pack Training Institute as well. And we sponsor our own classes here at our training facility here in, in Ogden, Utah. And they range from a variety of different topics from leadership management, financials, systems and processes, marketing. And uh, we also try to employ a lot of instructors that are special specialists in those areas as well. Um, if you'd like to check those courses out, we'd love to have you at one of our classes and you can see them at weartheinstitute.com. Uh, that's it for, for that promotion. Let's get back into some of the pros and cons of running an MSO. Seth. I w- give me a pro and a con. Um, pro is is obviously greater potential and and sometimes more freedom because you have more people, more ability to to not be there as often. I would sometimes. I would say a lot of people might think that it's not as you know it doesn't give you that much freedom because now you have multiple locations that are pulling at you. Depends on how you do it and set depends on your structure. Set does, does it does well. That. Yeah. <laughs> I have somebody else that handles all that. He's the one that's stressed out, but he gets (laughs) compensated for that. Um, Cons. I mean, obviously the people side, right? You you know, more, more stores, more headaches, you know, you're going to have 
people calling in sick, your manager that's out sick, you're trying to figure out how to cover that. You're going to have a, we had a foreman that just exited the industry. It's tons of back issues. He just can't do it anymore, even though he wasn't even a production foreman. So you're going to have that. And that's not an easy position to replace. So as much as I'm not generally involved in hiring, I'm generally involved in hiring our leadership team replacements. And so that's a con when you're trying to fill that where you can't just fill it from the store. So, you know, that would me, be one of the bigger ones. Let me ask a question. Um, uh, Brian, uh, Seth and, and, and Tom, when you guys go to hire for a position, do you really try to hire from within and move people through, or do you try to hire from without, or is it combination of both? You know, I, I would say it really depends on the position. So we, we recently, um, when we added our sixth store, we told the managers that we we're going to add an area manager because it was beginning to be too cumbersome for the general manager and myself to run effectively by ourselves. And so we went through this, this big interview process. And I knew that we have four managers in the company that all of them were qualified to, to be the area manager. And so that was really exciting to me and the message that I really wanted was that we are hiring and those opportunities that I promised everybody as they join the company, that those opportunities are there. Because not only do you take the, the, the one guy that moves up, then there's a vacuum and then that has to be filled by somebody else that gets promoted. And then that person, you know, fills another, you know, somebody fills that position. So it is um, multiple promotions going on at one time. Now um, we, we did run into a situation where I, um, a couple of years ago where I needed a general manager and, and I just didn't have somebody that fit that bill that had the competency to do that within the company. So it was, it was frankly a big risk for me to hire somebody outside of the company. And I did that and it worked out very well, but I had to really make a big decision to know that what I was doing was going to send a message to everybody and it ruffled some feathers, but, but, you know, in the end it worked out. Um, and I think the, the more, to me, the more you can hire at a lower level, more of an entry level into your company, the better off you are because it's going to be a little less expensive. Those people come with less baggage. They're more teachable, all that. But it really depends on how well you have um, systems and, and people in place that are that have this uh, teaching and abundance mentality that they're going to teach and develop those people um, that, that are, that are coming in behind them that are going to fill the void when they get promoted, that they're going to have somebody there to take their place. Take a, take a second. Cause I think you're, you're talking about something really important. Expand on the abundance mentality, just, just a little bit for us. Well, I think, you, you know, you have people that, that have a scarcity mentality and that is, Hey, there's only a finite amount of opportunity and, um, and, and things that are available to me. And if I, if I share that, or if I, if, if I don't guard that closely, then it limits me as a person and abundance mentality is there is so much out there that I can afford. Um, and, and actually it benefits me to share and to give and to, to develop other people and to help them get along because when they do, then, then I get to, uh, to move forward and it develops me and, and I grow as a result as well. So, you know, you, you run into those people. There's, there's shop owners out there that they don't want you to, to talk to anybody because they feel like you're, you're competing um, for the same customers. And, and my mentality is, man, I 
I can only take 2000 customer active customers per shop that I have to really run an effective shop. And I'm in a market where there's 40,000 people within my market area. I, I, you know, there's not possibly enough stores to take, take that over. So, um, so that's really, you know, my, my nutshell uh, kind of definition of, of an abundance versus scarcity mentality. I, I, I find it interesting. You said, I, I just need 2000 in your client base in a, in a market of 40,000. A lot of shop owners don't take the time to, to realize that or think about that. Right. Just, just, just putting a pin in that for everybody who's listening. <laughs> Tom, uh, I want to, I want to get moving. I know that, I know that you've only got two locations at this point, but um uh, and we'll expand upon this with Seth and, and, and Brian here, but what have you guys done? What has been your strategy in acquiring the next shop and how has that changed over time? So Tom, I want you to talk about your strategy and then uh, Seth and Brian, I want you guys to talk about how your strategy has changed as you've been acquiring more locations. Yeah, I, you know, I obviously am putting together a strategy if I buy, uh, keep hanging out with guys like this and get convinced to buy four <laughs> or five. <laughs> but uh, uh, I would do it now that I've done it once. Obviously, I think doing it again would be that much easier, and so on and so forth. You know, but uh, uh, my strategy in getting ready to buy the second location was obviously to dial in the people in the first location and then get them feeling good about me stepping away. So they didn't feel like their leader was abandoning them. So I had to make sure that uh, the leader that I you know hired as my manager was seen as the leader with or without me. So my strategy was to just make myself scarce for about a year leading up to it, even though I wanted to be at work more often. Honestly, I actually purposely made myself unseen so that as I stepped away, it didn't freak out the, you know, the beast I've got going, you know, my, my latent store will do 3.7, 3.8 million, somewhere in between that this year and drop a lot of money out the bottom. So my number one goal was don't mess with this (laughs) while we're going to pursue something else to do. And then, you know, now that I've got the second location, it's the same thing, getting the people on the team. And then I'm thinking forward several years to, you know, I know, okay, if three years from now, I'm going to need a good service advisor. I probably need to start looking for uh, like an assistant service advisor now so that they can be working with my two good advisors for the next couple of years. So that when we're ready for a third advisor, we've got that person growing. So just kind of my number one concern honestly is just staff when you've got the right people to do it you're good to go but as i bought my second location i didn't have any staff so guess who did those positions until i could hire and train those positions that was me and i'm uh, not a huge fan of being a shop worker i'm a way better shop owner so uh so when i move forward if i was to buy a third location i think i would uh do something similar to what Seth is doing. I think I would probably be, I would probably actually bring one of my top performers from my shade tree shop into the mix and have them actually start overseeing uh, all three locations if, when I buy the third. Awesome. Seth, did your approach change? I, a little bit. I mean, the second store we bought, but then I did the, um, 
I did kind of the unthinkable, right? I bought a store that was doing five, $600,000 in business and I fired every single customer three days after I bought it because <laughs> of, I want a Euro store and they were doing domestic and Asian cars and I want no part of those. So I bought a store. If it was underperforming, so I bought it cheap, but I fired every single customer. And I've learned, you know, when we look at our acquisitions, it's really hard to find a good Euro store that wants to sell. So I'm really not acquiring shops as much as I'm acquiring opportunities in failed locations now or building new. So my second, my third store was a build. My fourth store is a failed um, tire store. It was a Midas before that. I'm basically buying the building, gutting it and launching a store. I'm not so sure I'm doing acquisitions anymore. Um, I find them almost harder for my style because it's hard to find the mix because I'm buying value that I'm not keeping. Unless I find a truly Euro only store, which are far and few between, I'm pretty much building it from nothing. And the only downside to that is it generally costs me significant human capital because I have to hire people. I carried payroll for a manager and they tech for six months to onboard them through our system so that they could go launch the store. So Either way, whether you acquire a store or build a new store to do it right, generally costs money. Um, our formula has been pretty well. I mean, we took a new store from zero in our first full 12 months. We turned it into a million-dollar store. Um, my new Medina store that we opened it will be on pace next year. It's full year open for a million-dollar store. So I also struggle to buy a store when I have a pretty good formula to take from zero to a million dollars in 12 to 18 months. Nice. Brian, how has your strategy changed over the years? Um, it, you know, it's changed a few times. Um, I think when I first started out, it was, hey, the, the real estate is really important to me. And then I started understanding that there's a lot of opportunity in, in shops that are either empty or um, are being ran without real estate. And and so then um, I kind of opened up to that in, in bought a couple of shops that are leased and they'll probably always be leased. The uh, one shop I was able to buy the building, but the, the land is still leased. So that's, um, I say it's like kissing your sister, you know, it's <laughs> just uh, not, not ideal. Um, the, uh, the, um, the, the other interesting thing is there's, again, there, to me, there's a ton of opportunity in everything. And the last two acquisitions that we got um, were, one was a store that was very profitable and the owner wanted to sell it for top dollar. And in the end, we paid top dollar for it. We started out and the store was averaging $120,000 a year. I'm sorry, a month. And then we took it over and um, we got it up to 180 within the second month we had it. And then the last three months, it's done over 200,000. And a lot of that really depended on even though it's successful and he wanted top dollar, what's the capacity and, and what's the potential of that store? And so I think that's really critical when you're looking at that. And then the um, fifth, our fifth store, the second acquisition that we did earlier this year, that one was a shop that was just kind of breaking even, had floundered for a number of years. But we looked at it and we said, you know, how much is it going to cost us if we wanted to come into this market? and start a shop from scratch. And that's really how we looked at it versus a profit or a liquidation sale, that sort of thing. 
And in that area of the mar- in that area of Denver, it's one of the best areas, you know, most affluent areas in Denver and very competitive as far as people wanting to get in. And we know shop owners in there that do very, very well. And so we said, hey, this is what we're willing to offer. And that we felt it was really three times more than what the, the business was worth when we had evaluated. We have a, a, a broker that does kind of a drive-by evaluation, just takes all the ask the owner a bunch of questions, gets all the financials compiled, all the ad backs, the seller's discretionary earnings, and then just says, hey, look, this is really what it's worth. And then it's a good starting point because it's objective. And then we can at least start talking to the owner about, hey, tell me why you think it's worth more. So that, for me, kind of looking at everything over the last, especially this last wave, but over the last 15, 17 years, um, since I started the business, it's evolved uh, quite a bit and it, it continues to change. So what we're doing right now probably wouldn't have made sense back in 2008 when everything was really falling apart. And there was opportunities that were much more lucrative than what um, what there would be right now uh, or more abundant in certain areas than others. And right now it's kind of a seller's market. So you got to look at some of these things like Seth does and says, hey, I'm looking for failing businesses because those make more sense to me. But I don't think that um, if if you can find a profitable business that's a high-performing business, in my mind, it's all about what the potential is. Because even, even if he's putting 20% to the bottom line, he's doing maybe 100 and you know, or, or 1.2, 1.5 million a year, does the shop have the potential to run a, a Tom Lambert level of over $3 million a year? And if that's the case, then there's a lot of meat on the bone. You can pay that that investment off very quickly. So um, I, I will tell you the one thing where my strategy hasn't changed, and that's finding good people to, to work with me and, and really listening to what people want what their goals are, their aspirations are personally and professionally, and making sure that we align and making sure that I work tirelessly to create the opportunity um, that they're looking for in, in my company. Do you got? Do you look for a, a specific ROI? Like uh, I want to pay it back in three years, five years, etc. Yeah, yeah, I think. For me, the minimum would be a, a three-year payoff, right? And that's where you get into the three EBITDA. Um, but there's there's people that are looking at well I want four or five just because it is a seller's market, and again the the fifth location that we got it was I mean <laughs> you looked at his numbers it was closer to six or seven EBITDA but we knew the potential because it's doing roughly one point two million a year it's a nine bay facility in, in mm. some one of the best areas in Denver. And we're going, hey, this is a $2 million shop if we just tweak the numbers. And, and we really interviewed the team members real closely. And we knew that we had people that really had, um, they're really good people, um, good hearted people and their aspirations really aligned with where we wanted to go with the company. And we look for people that want to grow. And if uh, if people really have that drive to grow and you give them the opportunity, man, they, they will uh, they will storm the gates of hell with water pistols for you. If they're comfortable being where they're at and they don't really, you know, they, they don't have a lot of aspirations or they're, they're kind of that that scarcity sort of mentality, then that devalues the business. Because then then you got to have that bench to bring over there and it waters you down and and there's an opportunity cost every time you buy a business. The opportunity, okay, now I'm going to devote myself to this until it's until it's running and it's profitable and it can cash flow another acquisition. And 
man, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know, I've done this long enough to where I have purchased a business and then five other businesses show up on my doorstep and go, man, I can't, I can't buy any of those because I'm, you know, I'm committed to this last purchase. So, you know, that there's going to be an opportunity um, that you're going to have to turn away when you buy this business. And the faster you can get that up and running, if it's already has a team there, now you can hold on to that bench and you can say, Hey, the team is there. It's running. I'm going to hold these guys on the bench. And if that next opportunity comes around, now I can start, you know, pulling my people off the bench and go start another shop. The other thing too is if you bring these people in that are not, they don't fit in your culture, they can actually poison your culture. Oh yeah. So oh my gosh, right? You know that that would that would be deadly to the to the company overall. Yeah, I think you know I mean, two two uh, two areas that I've really studied very uh, very intensely, um, or two theories would be the Maslow uh, hierarchy of needs and the uh, the Hertzberg two factor theory. And really, that really allows you to understand where are people in the organization, where are they in their lives, and what's motivating them. Because um, I'm, I'm a huge believer that everybody goes through a, a survival, success, and then significance phase. And if you're talking to somebody that's really trying to survive, and you're talking about significance that they can have in the industry, they don't want to listen to you. If you're talking to somebody who's very successful and and they're wanting to um, do something that's more rewarding and more fulfilling personally to them, and you don't give them that opportunity and, t- and talk about how they can be significant and how they can help mentor and grow other people, then there's a good chance you're going to lose them because somebody else is going to ask them to to do that for them and their company. So you, you really have to know how to talk to people and know the phases that they're in and really play to that and show them the path in your company that they can take in order to fulfill what they're looking for in their short and long-term goals. That's brilliant. Um, we're, we're at that point in time. I don't want to, I love the, the, the train train of thought of discussion we're going down right now, but we're at that time where we get to start wrapping things up. Um, those of you who are listening, if you'd love to have another episode like this, let us know in the comments below, or you can email us at info at we are the Institute.com and say, Hey, do another MSO episode. Um, I want to thank you guys so much for being here, Tom, Seth, Brian. Uh, I mean, we work with a lot of shops to get them to that point where they can become MSOs. And uh, we'd still work with a ton of MSOs out there. So if you guys are interested and want to talk to the Institute about how we can help you get there, we'd love to. I want to wrap up with just kind of a, kind of a, what's, what's a, what should be a top priority for owners who are watching this to either expand or, you know, move from one, one operation to, to multiple operations or to grow their existing MSO. So think of a uh, top priority uh, that you would suggest that listeners out there should hear. And we'll start with uh, Brian. Well, I'm going to go back to people. You know, you, you really, we are in the people industry. We just happen to fix their cars for them. And, uh, and there's really four, to me, you have to look at your business as a, as a vehicle, right? And, and, and it's really similar to if I um, abuse my body and I neglect my body, then all of a sudden I'm not able to go out and enjoy, you know, um, you know, outdoor activities. I can't climb mountains, all that sort of stuff. And the same thing with the, the business is that the, the more you have healthy habits and do things that increase the health of your business, then it takes everybody where they want to go. So 
the uh, the team members should look at that business as as a vehicle to get you where you want to go. So if you suck at drive resources, you overpay, you don't pay your bills, you're putting on you know lousy parts, you're not investing in the growth and the education within your company, then your your business is going to be fat and lazy and, and incapable of taking you to where you want it to take you. So really being disciplined, knowing your numbers, knowing people, knowing um, and, and teaching people, developing people within to take over that responsibility and scaling your knowledge and your business to those people that are in there that are hungering for that and driven and finding those driven people that want to go to the same place you want to go and they see the business as a vehicle to get you there mutually as mutually successful that's key and and if you have people or if you set off this aura that this business is here to serve me as an owner and and you're here to be you know my servants that's that's going to really um, stifle anybody in in business i believe so that would be my key takeaways ken thank you dad I think Brian said something um, kind of uh, important. Uh, I don't know. It's important, period. Um, the, the failures of the business are the failures of management and leadership. They're not the failures of the employees. Uh, management and leadership should recognize when they have an employee in the wrong place, be able to make the adjustments to that and not let the business fail. Uh, when the business succeeds, the success of the business is the employees. They get the credit because they did the work, you know, and, and, and if you're, if you have that mixed up where you think that they work for you and it's their job to put money in your pocket, you're, you're mistaken and it's going to make things difficult for you. And you're going to have a hard time managing people and getting people to come along and, and really see the vision uh, for themselves and for the business. So you're going to continually fight this uh, throughout your thing. Um, For me, I think, I need to be solid or at least fairly solid in the one company I have. I don't want to kill that. And then I might want to take a a real hard look at myself and say, am I someone who really wants multiple businesses? Because if you're not and you go down that road, um, it's going to be, it's not going to be as fun as you think it is. Now, you know, a guy like Brian and Seth, they're very successful and Tom, they, they, they're having a, the time of their lives helping people be successful and generate money and you know putting new shops in place but i met guys that had their second shop that it was just the almost the death of them to have a second shop so be sure you're that guy or that person that wants you know and and then it can be really fun um so i'll i'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. I guess, you know, the people are so important, but also you have to say, this is not going to be simple and it's not going to be easy. I mean, it's, it's certainly doable. A lot of other guys have done it. Um, and I have to stick with it and really, you know, learn as much as I can learn from guys like Seth and, and Brian and, and people that have done it before. Um, uh, I, I was going to say almost identically what, uh, what Cecil said, uh, a lot of the multiple shop owners that I've come across in like the last five years, I don't think those shop owners are doing it for the right reasons. They're almost doing it for pride. Like, look what I've done. And so they have, they get one store and they run it for a little while and they're doing okay in my book. And then they, the next thing, next time you talk to them, they got three. And uh, they're not a very happy person, but 
but then they they tell you how many stores they have with with almost like it's really impressive you know so i guess my thoughts are for myself moving forward if i move forward buying another shop i want to make sure uh i'm doing it for the right reasons i like to do everything with intent not to uh not to impress people you know i network with a lot of successful people in a lot of different industries and when you're the guy in the room that says oh i'm an auto shop owner it's generally not the most impressive title because our our our, uh, stereotypical shop in the industry is not known as uh, the seths and the brines of the world you know but for me i don't care so i don't you know what i mean i don't i don't care to stand up in a room and say oh i own five shops or ten shops uh i just uh I just want to do it. I value my time. So if it's going to be fun to do the third one and it's going to be good for my family, I'm going to do the, do the third one, but I'm not going to do it to, to impress you. Right. I like that. Seth, you want to, you want to finish this off? Sure. I mean, I would, I would echo what Tom and, and Cecil said, if you're going to do it, you want to make sure you're doing it for yourself. Not to be the, not because it's the cool thing to do right now, because it seems to be all the rage right now, but I know multiple people that weren't quite ready and jumped into a second shop and are the most miserable people you'll ever know once you know them. But on the outside, they say it's great because that's just somewhat how people are. Um, I, I would echo one thing Tom said earlier. Can you disappear from the shop for a month like he did? Can you just disappear and can the shop run? Then you're ready for a second shop. Um I was, I made that mistake. I thought I could get a second shop going. I wasn't able to walk away from my shop for that long. And my first second shop was a mess, but I'm so stubborn. I did again. So but <laughs> I learned from it. Um, and I'll leave you with the, the quote that Daniel, uh, my CEO sent out this morning. Um, as we struggle with the management of multi shops, as we struggle with having people and getting them to buy in, right? That's always a problem, no matter what you do. It's the honest truth, but This is a quote Daniel sent out this morning. For many, the primary culprit is the curse of knowledge bias. The cognitive bias causes us to inaccurately assume that others have the same information as we do. In leadership or management, nothing can be further from the truth. So understanding that statement is the best thing I can leave you with for understanding where you want to go. We fail to we fail to understand that people do not have the same information we do. And we get frustrated with people that don't know what we want and how we want it done. I love that. Thank you guys again so much for, for being on this panel with us today, uh, helping us finish up this episode. Uh, if those of you out there who are listening, if you, if you enjoyed this, you want to have another MSO episode, um, let us know in the comments down below, or you can contact us at info at we are the Also, for any other topic ideas that you'd like us to cover, uh, we have some good episodes coming up. Uh, Again, if you like this, you learned something, please like, share, and follow our page uh, so you can stay tuned when we post new episodes. We do it about every two weeks. Um, We're pretty consistent on that schedule. Tune in November 10th for episode 84. uh, And just to let you guys know, we're going to be at Apex. So look for Cecil and myself there. If you want to have a conversation or you're going to be at Apex, we will also be there teaching some classes, shaking hands and having some fun with other shop owners. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. 
and we'll see you guys next time. That's it for this one. This episode was brought to you by GearForShops.com, the GearHeads Network, and the Institute. For a better business, a better life, and a better industry, visit WeAreTheInstitute.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one.